Hey folks, welcome to the House of Kraus. I'm Richard Kraus. The Star Wars Death Star Christmas tree topper is now perched high above the Christmas tree. The Christmas decorations are complete. So come on in, gather around the tree, bask in its warm glow, and help us celebrate our Star Wars Christmas. And what better way to do that than to present a feature-length interview with Riz Ahmed. He plays Bodhi Rook in one of the most highly anticipated movies of the year, Rogue One, A Star Wars Story. We'll get to that a bit later on. First up, David Frankel stops by The House of Krauss. His other films include The Devil Wears Prada, Marley and Me, The Big Year. He won an Academy Award for Best Short, uh, an Emmy for his direction of Band of Brothers. He did the Entourage pilot, loads of stuff. His new movie is called Collateral Beauty, stars Will Smith, who at the beginning of the film is a charismatic advertising kingpin, but then grief touches his life and he struggles to find answers. And he does so by writing letters to abstraction, to death, to love, to time. When those abstractions kinda, sorta come to life, it changes everything for him. Here's David Frankel talking about Collateral Beauty. You came to this project uh, a little bit later than maybe you have on some other films, right? Is that true? Yeah, I mean, it. it um, I came on to it, the, uh, you know, the whole history. Yeah. So, um, it, it felt like, you know, when you, so when you come on, it felt like, oh, this is written in stone. Like, everybody loves this screenplay, and we're going in three months, and just get and then you find out that so people start whispering I, I wish we could fix that and I wish we could fix that and um, so there was actually turned out to be a pretty normal development process right. where we tried a lot of stuff even beforehand uh, and then once the actors got involved and and uh, you know Professor Will Smith and Professor Edward Norton uh, weighed in uh, and Professor Kate Winslet. There was a, um, there was a lot of uh, a lot more writing, mostly condensing. You know, right. um, uh, Edward had this brilliant vision of the movie as a as a screwball comedy, and uh, which I think was really smart. And um, and Will always said, "Gee, we got to make the first half of the movie as funny as possible, mm-hmm. so that we don't kill people." And um, um, uh, and so that's what you know. We, we we worked on that. I mean, I think then so the script took on a certain vibe, right. uh, uh, and then we got into the cutting room, and a lot of the stuff that we'd added, we stripped back out, and and it, it, we really you know it, it got it ripened into something that was very similar to its original form. I'm always surprised to hear about the amount of changes that happen and, and when you're on set you were talking last night about how you rewrote things and or, yeah. or the, you know people were rewriting and changing because there's millions of dollars involved yeah. and there's deadlines and there's everything and, and what kind of mindset do you as a director have to have? I mean it comes with experience I guess that you can say you know what I know this will work out in the end. There are moments you know there was one moment uh the scene where uh, uh, Rafi, the time, uh, grabs onto the back of Howard's bicycle, right? Yeah, and um, Howard throws him off, and they and they have a confrontation in the street. 
And that confrontation as scripted was like two lines that uh, didn't quite make sense in the context of where we were in the movie at that time. Like there, and, and especially in light of other scenes that we'd already shot. And, uh, and I remember, you know, we're standing in the middle of, uh, you know, Bleecker Street or wherever the hell we were, and uh, Will's fans have accumulated, so there's felt like 2,000 people right, around the street, an audience, yeah. right, and the crew, and, uh, and, and Will says, you know, this scene doesn't quite work, and... You know, you, you, you go, I don't know, the sun's going down in a couple hours. <laughs> and, yeah, in real life. Right. If there was a score, it would go dun, dun, dun. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and I said, well, you know, but yeah, you just go, well, what do you want to, what do you want to do? What do you want to say? And, and I kind of, I kind of glance in a panic around for Alan and, and, uh, and, you know, he's dodging, you know, because he <laughs> not sure where, or, and, and Will just starts riffing yeah. and, uh, find something that seems to work you know and that's what we did and uh and that you know that that's you know when you say experience you, you know you usually if you if you the the actors know their characters so well, they, say, yeah. they can they can usually find a way you know what was interesting you know there were there was that sequence was written in where the his encounters with the abstractions happened in a different order oh. so it was written where he first ran into love, then time, right. then death. So, and we shot them in the in the order, death, time, love, and so when we, uh, as we were approaching love, Will and I were still arguing about which whether love should be first or last right. in the sequence, and we had prepped, you know, for for six months up to that moment thinking love was first and he decided he came to me the, the day before and said I think love should be last and it was such a mind fuck you know yeah. when I was uh, um, and it was it turned out to be uh, you know I, I I fought him really tooth and nail about it because I really thought that that moment on the train when he you know, confronts death was really the pivotal thing, and and uh, and then the, it rained, and <laughs> and because of the weather, you couldn't shoot. We couldn't. We uh, we had to. It wouldn't it, like it, you know. We wouldn't have matched like that. You know, we wouldn't. Right. We, uh, the sequence wouldn't have made sense. You had to be so. We had to be coming out of the subway rather than going into the right. subway. And uh, I said, okay, well, fine, we'll put love last. And then we rewrote that scene. She was more confrontational with him. She yeah. she basically in the in the screenplay tells him to fuck off. Right. And uh, and I said, you know, let's just do one take where you go, don't give up on me. Yeah. Because I think this is a turning point, and we need to. Ha he needs to hear something hopeful rather than just be punched in the face. And uh, and that you know that changed the whole so the, and it was all like because it rained it, it's it, you never know I guess it, it, you it, never it's, know. it's equal parts uh, yeah of course Will said oh God works in mysterious ways I got you know but it, Will Smith got his way big surprise yeah, yeah. yeah. Will Smith and God yeah. They, yeah yeah conspiring to get his way right. um so the, the the movie is about abstractions but it's not really 
about that. Like for me, it was more about just someone self-realizing, like yeah. it, it, coming to grips with a terrible, terrible thing, an unimaginable yeah. uh, event in their life. Yeah, and I don't know. You know, not all, not everybody's dealt with grief. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've seen some pretty profound grief. My wife lost her mom, uh, you know, six years ago, and uh, and I've seen you know grief really distort uh, uh, someone's connection to the universe you know like the just the there it, it's um, and you you know and I learned it's not you know you, you don't just get over it you know it's well like, it burrows down in there down. It and it can come up at unexpected DNA. times yeah. and yeah. yeah you know and and um and that's what I, you know, the line that Helen has, uh, I think, is the most profound line in the movie, which is, um, uh, "Nothing's ever really dead if you look at it right." right you know? yeah. And uh, and I that I thought was really beautiful because I, you know, that is how we all live on, you know, in in memory and not in fact or yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. Um, So when you have someone like Will Smith at the center of a film. And in the first part of the film, he is uh, when we first meet him, he's he's Will Smith. He's the Will Smith that we that we that we know. And then obviously something terrible happens. He changes substantially, and so you've got the world's most charismatic actor, <laughs> probably, yeah, and, and on-screen presence. And are you saying, bring it down, Will? Bring it down because he can't be Will Smith at that moment. Yeah. He can't be that natural thing that he has that has made him a superstar. You can't have that shining through in that moment. Yeah, or in I mean, those he moments didn't need for... that direction. He, his instinct was, was, you know, spot on for the character. Uh, the, um, the thing he was, you know, uh, he was most concerned with was actually, you know, I mean, I think the... the uh, just making sure that the, that he that he, that the humor remained in the movie. Right. You know, he has such great comic instincts, yeah. and and so there are these moments. You know, he you know it's the same thing Ed, that Ed worked on. It's like remembering that it, there is a screwball element to this. You know, so that when he's confronted with that death, like those moments are funny, yeah. uh, and um, in a way that you know he could have played them so morose that there was no mora- no reaction. So. It wasn't so much getting him into into the character. It was um, what we worked on was just again sort of the the levels of um, of how we play that. Interesting, because I do think often that films that that we now look at as holiday films, because this has a Christmas element to it, but it's not Santa Claus, isn't it? At that right. So it's a different thing. But uh, movies like It's a Wonderful Life that deal with kind of magical realism sure. and yeah. and grief. And yeah. uh, bitterness and all the stuff, but it just seems to work somehow. And I wonder why that is. I mean, the holidays are, are, are a time that bring up. I mean, uh, yeah. they're not always the hallmark holidays that that you know. That no, are I mean, you know, ha- for many people, you know, like this one, you know, I mean, people, more people kill themselves yeah. <laughs> at the yeah. time here. You know, it's sort of, it's the middle of winter. There's not enough sunlight. There's, you know, we're. We feel the it's it's for many people it's when we feel the loneliest or when we feel the most disappointed in life. You know, it's a time of assessment. So, uh, which is why I think like there's such a premium on you know there's this organized holiday where we have to get together and and be cheerful. 
uh, and um, so it's uh, I you know I, I it's I think we also the holiday movies there's you know you always hope there's I mean the, the, that there's a sense of hope that yeah. there's uh, that you know I mean and that's you know that's ultimately what um, you know what uh, I think we all dream for the audience to you know come out of this movie and and you know like I know when Will saw it the first time just ran to hug Willow you know right. who was in the audience with him I mean just and you know people you know um, want to connect and ha- you know realize the fragility of our time I do think that the movie is open ended enough so that people will walk out and have slightly different ideas about sure. exactly what they've yeah, just what seen it, yeah, yeah. Exactly. but it yeah. is hopeful it does end on an up well that's what's you know I mean the ambiguity is really unusual I think yeah. it, in a in a film and Obviously, you know there were endless, endless seminars on how the movie should end, and um, uh, it'll be interesting to see how you know how people respond. That was David Frankel talking about Collateral Beauty, big holiday movie that stars Will Smith, Edward Norton, Kate Winslet, Michael Pena, Helen Mirren, big stars. Now, my next guest is someone who's about to become a big star. Riz Ahmed, if you looked at the credits carefully of Nightcrawler, you saw that he was the co-star and almost scooped that movie away from Jake Gyllenhaal on the small screen. He was in The Night Of. If you haven't seen The Night Of, don't even look at me right now. The Night Of is eight one hours uh, following a young man who's thrown in prison for maybe or maybe not committing a terrible crime. He is at the center of the action. He is terrific. Expect boatloads of Emmys to go to that show. Terrific stuff. This weekend, he'll be on the big screen once again in Rogue One, a Star Wars story. He plays Bodhi Rook, a pilot with some special skills who is taken in by the Rebel Alliance to help steal the blueprints for the Death Star. Uh, He's a fascinating guy. He's also a musician. Uh, He's got lots of things going on. Here's a feature interview with Riz Ahmet talking Star Wars. Physicality in your roles has always been important to you. Um, I think of The Night Of and how you physically changed throughout that performance. Nightcrawler was a different thing again. Uh, Was there any physical demands that you made upon yourself for this film? Um, Yeah, there there were. Um, I, um, you know, Bodhi Rook is not meant to be a soldier. He's not meant to be... uh, you know, someone who's cut out to fight in wars. Um, so I, I, I let myself kind of like just lose a bit of weight, get kind of skinny and squirrely. Um, and, um, <clears throat> you know, I had this whole kind of long hair thing going on. And I, I, uh, I kind of got the sense that Bodhi is someone who, you know, whereas like someone like Nas is someone who's paralyzed by circumstances and this almost goes into this kind of cocoon in prison. And there's lots of things rumbling under the surface, but he is very much kind of retreating into this chrysalis and you're not sure what emerges. Is it a butterfly or is it a wolf? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Bodhi Rook is someone who's like, not, uh, who, who isn't as still. He is someone who is on the run. He's someone who's on the run from his responsibilities when we meet him. He's someone who's, on the run from the empire who's someone who is um constantly moving 
and so that kind of sense of like anxiety and 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 and, and movement um, and the desire to escape, you know, it was kind of informed his physicality um, and also the kind of shame that comes with that, you know, it kind of like hunches you over a little bit and stuff. So I don't know. I, I guess. I don't think about the physicality actually directly very often. I kind of just think about, you know, how this person sees the world and their relationship to different things. And then that kind of somehow kind of seems to inform the physicality itself. Now, getting into his headspace as a rebel, is it true that I, and I've read this, that you spoke with Iraqi interpreters who interpreted for the U.S. government and just to sort of get into their mindset a little bit? Um, no, that's um, not exactly true. What I was saying is, um, you know, Bodhi um, is somebody who... Bodhi lives in an occupied city, an right. occupied planet. And to make ends meet and to just to get by and make a living, he, he works with the occupying force, which is the empire. Right. So um, what I said was I, I actually saw a documentary, uh, which is one that my friend is making actually called... Um, um, interpreters and it's uh, it's a documentary about Afghan and Iraqi citizens who are working with the American army to, to make ends meet and, mm-hmm. and also do what they kind of see at a time as the right thing um, to help them and just kind of threw up some interesting stories in terms of the kind of conflicts and uh, issues that that throws up you know when you're someone living under occupation and you decide you need to work with or collaborate with the occupying forces you know it's, it's not easy you, a lot of people end up hating you mm-hmm. a lot of people think you're a traitor um, it's, it's you kind of sometimes live with a sense of shame or embarrassment um, it's not easy psychologically you know and is that what you took away from the research in there or was there something more um, yeah that, that is that is that is definitely one of the things I, I took away from um, um that, that is one of the kind of main ways in which research informed playing mm-hmm. Bodhi Rook. But I would say actually that with the Star Wars movie, it's actually quite limited the amount of research you can do. Um, it's not like you can interview people who are ex-Imperial pirates yeah. and stuff. So um, really what, what you kind of have to go with is the fact that you grew up watching these movies. So when you see an Atat or a Stormtrooper or a you know, an X-Wing, it, it actually has, a, it triggers a memory in you and a visceral response. And sometimes that's just kind of childish excitement. Yeah. And it's about riding a wave of that adrenaline and actually just harnessing it rather than going, don't be a fanboy, be your, your, your body rook. It's like, well, where, where's your starting point? Where does, you know, it's to allow your kind of quite natural human reaction into the room is, is what I learned, you know, after a while of kind of trying the other way. Yeah, yeah. Trying to intellectualize it or yeah. something, yeah. And well, you were a fan when you were young. You told me you were six when you saw the, mm-hmm. the first movie and didn't really understand it, I guess, all the all the politics involved. But what was it then about that that, that grabbed you? It was just the, the imagination and the detail. You know, you've got characters like Jabba the Hutt. You've got characters like, you know, uh, Chewbacca and, and C-3PO and R2-D2 and Yoda. It's just so wondrous and um, imaginative. You know, and as a kid, it really leaves an impression. It really makes a mark. It kind of makes you, um, you know, want to act out your own sci-fi movies running around the house with your brother, which is what I ended up doing, you know, for years afterwards. And in a way, I'm still doing it until here I am doing it. <laughs> but um, you're doing it kind yeah, of for real now. Yeah, yeah. yeah, exactly. 
it, interesting. The movie has always appealed to me because of the the delineation between good and evil. You know, you knew mostly who was good and and who was evil. And they, the, the for me, that's the purity of that was something that really drew me in, and and has stayed with me ever since I saw the first film, and and have remained a fan all these years. Um, will we see that, or are things a little grittier without giving away any story things, which I know you can't, in Rogue One? Um, I understand the film is a little grittier in that it is uh, a, a little different in feel than the other movies. Are you able to, to tell me Yeah, anything? it is. It is. I think the way what Gareth wanted to do and Kathy and the whole team what they wanted to do was create something that was a little bit different to the other Star Wars movies and um, a, a little bit more realistic in a way and felt a little bit more like a war movie so they have like you know our director of photography Greg shot Zero Dark Thirty or right. people ending up our, our VFX teams did Black Hawk Down and Saving Private Ryan so it's definitely informed by that kind of gritty sensibility and accompanying that is as you said in, in, in these war movies sometimes there isn't a clear black and white mm-hmm. good and bad it's, it's about a lot of grey areas and so there is an element of that in, in, in this film. And um, hopefully that's something that people enjoy, you know. You've been a fan for a long time. Uh, on Instagram, literally a second ago, I was having a look and People magazine is out. Let's see if it's still here on my phone. There you are on the cover of People magazine uh, with this. It, it, does it blow your mind a little bit? Um, it is it. kind of... Um, it, it, I guess it feels cool being part of something that is popular um, and um, <coughs> so many people connect with. Yeah. Um, I don't know. It doesn't feel like, oh, look, there I am. It's like, oh, cool. You're, you yeah. know, you're, as an actor, what you kind of look for often what attracts us to acting is being part of an ensemble and being part of a team, mm-hmm. you know. Um, you know, having these kind of playmates that you can kind of like play act with and and so being part of something that's bigger than you is really what you're looking for. And the Star Wars story world is so much bigger than any one individual. So it just kind of feels kind of humbling and, and, and cool to be in that family, you know? And once you're in, you're in very deep. People are going to uh, always probably on some level think of you as part of this big family now. Um, what do you think the change in your fan base will be? Or is this something that you can't think about I mean there'll be a Lego figurine of you probably an action yes, no, figure yeah I've seen the Lego figure as well uh, which is which is uh, uh, it's very impressive the Lego figure it's <laughs> quite a jawline it's not modelled on me for sure um, it feels it's kind of fun yeah. and it feels kind of cool and it's also kind of strange um, ultimately it just feels like it's a real privilege and an honour to be part of a, a, a story world that so many people are invested in yeah. you know I come from a background of independent f- films where you're really not sure if anyone was going to go and see the film you know and we've been really lucky that so many people did see some of those really small films but it was always a bit of a crapshoot you weren't really, really sure which way it was going to go so it's really cool just to be part of a film that you know lots of people are going to see yeah. um, that's a kind of uh, just a layer of anxiety you don't have to deal with. Of course, then get a different kind of layer of anxiety, which is people's expectations, be, yeah. but, yeah. you know, it's pros and cons, isn't it? 
Will you check your Twitter account? Will you, uh, you know, all that stuff? Will you, will you look for the reaction, or do you know? Have you seen um, the film? I haven't seen. I'll you see it tomorrow. It. So, after you see it, you'll make up your own mind about what it is and what it isn't, or whatever. Uh, will you? Do you care what people think at this point, or no? Um, I'm always intrigued to see what the response is. You know, we don't make art in a bubble, right? Yeah. Or we don't make work in a bubble. We we make it to connect with audiences. So I'm always intrigued to see what people think of it um you know with the with the kind of uh disclaimer that i know you can never please everyone mm -hmm. and nor do i think you should necessarily try yeah. and please everyone so i think it'll be interesting to, to to see what people make of it yeah gareth edwards uh, has uh, said that or you've said about him that he's quite loose on set i found that kind of hard to believe Explain it to me because there's so much riding on this and probably so much money and you know all that stuff uh, What is what does that looseness involve? Um, it um, I think what it involves is is kind of a willingness to To let things run their course mm -hmm. uh, often he'd allow us to kind of I know we wouldn't cut, we'd just do very long takes, we'd do scenes again and again, and he would shoot different angles, and he would be stood in the middle of the room holding the camera himself, so, and the room would be kind of lit in a way that meant he could point the camera anywhere. So I guess it feels, it almost felt like theater sometimes, you know, it was like you're just, everyone's on. It's not like, okay, you're off camera, now you're on camera. It was like anything could happen at any time. So that created its own kind of adrenaline, and. It's actually kind of exhausting at times, but it's sometimes when you get really tired that those natural things happen. And did you shoot mostly at Pinewood, or were you... Because I know they shot some big, like, very big set pieces there, but then they shot all over the world as well. They did, yeah. They shot in Iceland and Maldives and uh, Pinewood, and um, I was mainly in Pinewood. Yeah. Um, but uh, sometimes felt like we were in Iceland and Maldives. Yeah, they really <laughs> built... They really build these kind of worlds for us to inhabit, which was really, really cool and such a gift for an actor to be able to kind of like step into that real world and everything is tangible. And you, do you live in London still? You, um, I was going to say you can sleep in your own bed <laughs> if you're at Pinewood, probably, no? Um, I do, uh, yeah. I'm born and raised Londoner yeah. and I still live in London. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, will you go? Is it important for you? Because I've talked to a, a number of actors who are, uh, for the, the big premiere, they want to do it in their hometown. They want to do it in their, their home city. Will London be a big deal for you? Oh, it'll be great, you know, for, to be able to take my parents along to the yeah. film and, and, and check it out and uh, some of my family. I think that, that that's always nice to be able to share your work with. So much of what we do sometimes is like away off in some weird bubble of world right. of make-believes. I think when you can share your work with with your family and your loved ones it's 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 nice you know it kind of bridges that distance sometimes that we have to create when we enter these like weird bubbles you know and you've recently recorded some music is that i mean it's something i i would imagine has always been with you but is it a, a stress release away from this big machine that must be revving up all around you with the Rogue One stuff? Is that just a way to like no. blow it out and do something a little different? No, it's not really a response to that. It's not something that kind of has happened um, because of my acting or anything. It's just always something I've done yeah. and uh, something that I hope I'll continue to do so long as I feel like I have something, you know, to, to, to say and... 
um, something to contribute, you know, that it's really just, it's quite selfish to be honest. It's like, I just need to kind of do it. I've just been doing it since I was a teenager and it just comes very naturally to me. So it's not really a response to anything that's happening with any other kind of work I'm doing. It's just a very kind of natural part of who I am really at this stage. And I'll continue to kind of record and put music out. And the the new record, uh, record CD, download, whatever, uh, it's political in, in, in tone, isn't it? Well, um, really for me, it's just quite a personal record. It's talking about my, the reality of my day-to-day experiences. And I think sometimes when you hear about people's experiences that aren't necessarily spoken or written about that much or aren't necessarily that visible in our culture, it can feel like a big shock and it can feel like super political right. and it can feel like it's setting out to make some kind of statement um i definitely do speak my mind and i have opinions and i don't know, shy away from expressing them but the idea behind the record isn't to kind of make a political statement it's to just kind of be honest right. uh and, and talk about m- my reality and and hope that p- many people can relate to it and thankfully lots of people have you know have been relating to to that um so yeah i think it's sometimes easy to kind of assign certain work with the label political if it's just the kind of stuff that you don't see a lot of yeah do you know what I mean yeah it's interesting because I think you know you could suggest that maybe Rogue One is political given the diversity of its cast making a comment on it or you could suggest it's just the art speaking you know reacting to its environment yeah I think yeah there's a temptation if anything isn't if if things aren't necessarily fully in line with the status quo then somehow they're political or they're subversive and I think that's a kind of it can, that can be a slightly dangerous line of thinking because it's kind of it, it it's it's just a little bit uh, alarmist, you know, uh, to kind of look at anything different uh, as as somehow a, a threat. Or yeah, yeah, you know yeah. what I mean. It's uh, yeah. I I hope that kind of. You know, our culture just keeps evolving and keeps offering up new voices and new stories. I have to mention the night of. Uh, we watched it, didn't binge it, and and specifically did not binge watch it. We wanted to take oh, really? the time How funny. between yeah. every episode. Most people I know kind of knocked it out in two or three days. No, no. We watched the first episode and made a conscious decision not to because we wanted to let it sort of marinate with us. And my wife would call me randomly. It would be like, when we'd watch it on the Sunday. She'd call me on Wednesday. And it would be like, okay, I have an idea. I think what's actually happening oh, wow. is, yeah, obsessed That's with so it. That's so cool. Yeah, it was, but it was such a good show. And it, I mean, it, it does it feel like it when you're making it? It's a silly question, I know, but did it feel special because it really was? Um, or are you felt, so immersed it, it, in it? That we it's were really to... immersed in it, to be honest. And it was quite a tough shoot because it's emotionally quite heavy. We felt a great sense of responsibility, particularly after having you know interviewed so many people that had been through the prison system. And lots of stories like that of Khalif Browder coming out and Adnan Saeed. And, you know, it would just it seemed to be, you know, we're making a story about a real issue. And so that kind of weighed heavily on us in lots of ways. And we just wanted to kind of throw ourselves into it. Um, and I think that was, that, was, that was our main focus, yeah. to be honest. Rather than thinking about how it would be received, we were thinking about are we doing it justice with our kind of effort. 
That's it. That's all. Get out of here. Go see Collateral Beauty or Rogue One, a Star Wars story. You can't hang around here anymore. We're going to shut down the Christmas tree for a couple of days, let the light bulbs cool down. But be sure to come back next week because there's always a new show every Monday at the House of Krause. And uh, you never know who's going to stop by for a visit. It might be one of your favorite people. So come on back and see us. 